Hello and welcome to The Intersection. My name is Mark Riley. Welcome to my podcast. In this episode, Upheaval in France. Why is the right wing linking the Manhattan District Attorney to George Soros? George Soros, how does that work? Members of Congress rake the CEO of TikTok over the coals while Utah is thinking about banning the app altogether for kids. And what's this about the huge number of guns stolen from cars? Let's get started, shall we? What is going on in France? President Emmanuel Macron decides to overhaul the nation's pension system, increasing pension age by two years, from 62 to 64. France has reacted angrily, and they got even angrier when Macron bypassed the legislature and enacted the bill on his own. Last week, he gave a televised speech in which he said the bill was an economic necessity. He knows the French public looks at their retirement age much in the way Americans look at the Second Amendment. Yet he went ahead anyway. Add to that the fact that Macron doesn't have a parliamentary majority and you have a built-in crisis of government. Meanwhile, protests abound and don't appear to be ending anytime soon. He's so desperate, in fact, that he's drawing comparisons to the January 6th protests in the U.S. Not a very smart thing to do, I might add. That isn't, by the way, washing with anyone in France. The only real question here is whether the French public is more upset about their pensions or the heavy-handed way their president is dealing with the opposition. Either way, it's a recipe for disaster. Organized labor, as one might expect, has gotten involved, and the protesters seem to have no intention of backing down, as does Macron. There's a fundamental question here. International opinion seems to buttress the notion that the French are just plain lazy. Some point to that 62-year-old retirement age as proof of that fact. However, objective figures, and I emphasize objective figures, say that is nowhere close to being true. At the end of the day, Macron may find the will of the French people could force him to back down. Even if he can make the case that the change is needed, he failed miserably to reach out to either the country's National Assembly or the public. Macron's dependence on members of the right-wing Republican Party to get things done could well have the effect of galvanizing progressive parties against anything he tries to do, not just pensions, but virtually anything else. Remember, he won by a relatively thin margin the last time he ran. On top of everything else, there are mounting accusations of police brutality. Much of this is laid at the feet of a special police unit called BRAV-M, they ride in pairs on motorcycles and were reportedly heard on one audio tape that was released to the public. In that audio tape, they threatened to put one protester in the hospital. The net result of all this could be the declaration of France's Sixth Republic, which might roll back some of the extensive powers given to the president by the existing republic. One thing it should scream out to the American progressives, however, Prolonged protest can, in fact, bring some results, even in the face of right-wing pushback. Because, of course, everywhere progressives push, the right pushes back. That's kind of sort of the way things go on the global political stage right now. 
I, for one, think Macron may end up having to deep six his pension changes. After all, protests on the streets of Paris and other French cities have led to the repeal of unpopular laws in the past. Why not now? Up next, who's afraid of TikTok and why? From Washington to London to Utah, fears about the Chinese-owned company are rattling the halls of Parliament, Congress, and even state legislatures. This is The Intersection. It's springtime and you're listening to Mark Riley, The Intersection of Politics and Culture. Welcome back to The Intersection. In a bitterly divided America, who would have thought we would have seen bipartisan unity over one issue? That subject? TikTok. A few opening points are in order. TikTok is owned by the Chinese internet behemoth ByteDance. There have been suspicions for a while now that the Chinese government has been using the app to spy on Americans. Now, When I first heard this, I thought it was hilarious. I thought somebody was joking somewhere. TikTok spying on Americans? I thought at first that TikTok was a way for teenagers to find a new way of communicating with each other that their parents might not be able to access, find out about, etc., etc. And there were all kinds of little one, two, three-minute videos that in many cases were just hilarious. I never used TikTok myself. I've watched it maybe a couple times, but it's not central to my life as it is and as it became for a lot of younger people. After all, TikTok was just what it was. I don't think people really paid that much attention, at least initially, for uh, around national security concerns. Now it seems the app is some sort of national security threat. Members of Congress got a chance to rake the TikTok CEO over the coals last week. Xiao Chu tried his best, but he couldn't mollify the more than 50 lawmakers who seemed bent on banning TikTok in the U.S. And of course, this is also going on in London and other parts of the world where they seem to believe that China has... an extraordinary influence over, if not owning a piece of, TikTok. Mind you, the app currently has, in the United States, 150 million users. That would be a little less than half the total population of the country. Chu emphasized that TikTok had come up with a way to protect American users' data. That would be by storing U.S. users' data on servers run by the software giant Oracle. That wasn't good enough for the Biden administration or the members of Congress who held this hearing and raked Chu over the coals. They wanted TikTok sold by its parent company, ByteDance. And if that didn't happen, it would increase the possibility of a nationwide ban. It's been banned already on federal government devices, cell phones, etc. But now we're talking nationwide ban. All this is a direct result of political tensions between China and the U.S. Although some members of Congress last week's, at last week's hearing said TikTok is potentially dangerous to the health of young people, they're coming to the table 
awfully late, and I can't emphasize this enough. You mean to tell me that suddenly people believe that TikTok is dangerous to the health of kids and they didn't know this back when TikTok first got started? Or has it taken that long for adults to figure out what TikTok was all about? Again, it's been embraced and used extensively by kids. The time to worry about its effect was when it came into wide usage, not necessarily now. It's like trying to close the barn door after the horse has run the derby. Besides, reading from a list of potential talking points in a hostile hearing may serve as a prelude to a ban, but will it actually stand up in court? You can bet that ByteDance, because part of the quid pro quo here is that the Biden administration wants ByteDance, as I mentioned, to sell TikTok. I don't know if he wanted, if they want it sold to an American company. I'm not sure, but they want it sold so that that connection, however it is, tenuous, real, whatever, will be severed because people think that ByteDance, the parent company, is a tool of the Chinese government. One thing is for sure. Those folks in Congress and the president will have to explain to a sizable chunk of the 150 million TikTok users in this country why it's so dangerous that it has to be banned. I mean, banning is not something that Americans tend to do. Certainly, people talk about freedom of speech, people talk about the First Amendment, and banning runs completely contrary to that. But if TikTok is in fact a national security threat, if they are in fact accumulating data about their users and using it for some nefarious purpose inside China, maybe it does have to be banned. We'll see. Already, one state, Utah, has a new law that bans children under 18 from using not just TikTok, but social media apps generally without parental consent. That's Instagram. That's Meta. That's the works. The law puts the onus on the social media platforms themselves to police this. The new measure will also require those same social networks to give Utah parents access to their children's posts, messages, and responses. And it will require social media services to block Utah minors from accessing their accounts from 10.30 p.m. to 6.30 a.m., a default setting that only a parent or guardian will be able to modify. This is according to a story in the New York Times. If it sounds restrictive, it is. It's also the answer to a lot of Utah parents' prayers. One of the bill sponsors says it is intended to address a mental health crisis among young people. Banning social media is a way to address mental health among young people? Maybe it is. I could be wrong. I'm not a kid. I'm not a parent of a kid anymore, but it just seems a little bit to me like overkill. Though other states have or are considering online safety legislation, Utah's goes way beyond other measures. Civil libertarians have concerns, but the overarching question is this. How will Utah monitor compliance? And what would be the penalties to the platforms for non-compliance? The bill sponsors say parents would still be able to grant their kids free access if that is their choice. 
Yet I'm wondering if politicians actually know enough about social media and its technology to actually make these kinds of things, these kinds of restrictions actually work. My experience has been it's the children, especially teenagers, who generally know more about both than their parents. It's true that many of the large social media platforms have been slack in keeping children safe from harmful online content. It's also just my opinion that as long as they continue to make huge sums of money, I'm talking about the platforms now, as long as they make that money, they have no real incentive to police the content on their platforms. I'm just not sure this new law in Utah will have, at the end of the day, its desired effect. Up next, the Manhattan District Attorney, who's contemplating charges against Donald Trump, has been called a lot of things by Trump supporters. But a tool of George Soros? Really? You're listening to The Intersection of Politics and Culture with Mark Riley. Welcome back to The Intersection. Thanks for staying with us. The philanthropist and billionaire George Soros has been pilloried by the right since he first began to get involved in politics on behalf of progressive causes and candidates. He's the man the right loves to hate. Never mind that the political right have literally dozens of mega donors standing ready to donate to conservative causes and candidates. Alvin Bragg is the Manhattan District Attorney in New York City. Last year, he decided against prosecuting Donald Trump for falsifying business records, leading the two lead prosecutors in that case to quit his office in protest. Late last year, he pushed forward with a probe into alleged payments Trump made to the porn star Stormy Daniels. It's been those charges that the political world has been waiting for with bated breath. Republicans in Congress have been quick to badmouth Bragg. He's become a national figure, in fact. And their most incendiary charge has been his ties to George Soros. They've alleged, among other things, that Bragg is bought and paid for by Soros. That he had received a million dollars in campaign contributions from him. That one is from Trump. And so on and so on and so forth. The Soros connection does in fact exist, but the link is a wee bit tenuous. Color of Change, the progressive criminal justice group, did receive a million dollars from Soros. They pledged to help Bragg get elected, but they also supported a number of other progressive DAs and DA candidates. They donated a half million dollars to Bragg. Soros didn't donate the, the money directly to the campaign at all. They've never even met Soros and Bragg. So there seems to be a wee bit of a disconnect there in terms of all the sound and fury surrounding both Alvin Bragg and George Soros. Sound and fury, in this case, signifying little or nothing. And finally, let's talk about guns, that third rail of U.S. politics. Take a wild guess where a majority of guns are stolen, strangely enough. In a majority of cases, they're stolen out of cars. In too many cases, those stolen guns end up being used in violent incidents. A recent study, in fact, 
shows the majority of stolen guns come from stolen cars. A majority of stolen guns. That fact has ignited a fierce debate between those who want to mandate securing guns in cars and trucks and those who oppose even some type of regulation. In some cases, groups of young people roam around parking lots and stadiums and other places. Their work is made easier by pro-gun stickers that many people, gun owners that is, display on their vehicles. It actually provides a roadmap for some of these gangs, and I don't believe all of them are juvenile either, uh, although there have been a couple of violent incidents that have been linked directly to guns stolen out of cars. One solution being debated would mandate firearms be locked in gun boxes when they're in cars or trucks. Seems like a common sense solution, but the gun lobby even opposes this. Something needs to be done when you consider that stolen guns end up killing and wounding people far from where they're originally taken. Even if you think the nation will never get over its love affair with firearms, at least something can and should be done about stolen guns. And I actually am one who sadly don't think the nation will ever, certainly in my lifetime, get over its love affair with firearms. But something should be done on this level. After all, they could hurt an innocent person near you. Thanks so much for listening to The Intersection. The executive producer is Kim Jack Riley. And music is by Tevin Thomas. Until next time, please be well.